Yes, Santa Cruz, welcome to the Cannabis Connection. I'm Christopher Carr. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Cannabis Talk Radio here in the beautiful Santa Cruz. My guest this evening, I'm very excited, very stoked, and beyond grateful for Nicholas Joseph Tandem, a.k.a. Nicka T. is a cannabis visionary, educator, public speaker, professor, processor, my, my mistake, processor, activist, and artist. He is a professor of dank. I will I will stand by that. Originally from the Bay Area, California, Nicotee moved to Colorado to continue his professional board sport aspirations and attended the CU Boulder, where he received a Bachelor of Science degree in 2007. After college, Nicotee spent the next 10 years in Denver, Colorado, where he founded Essential Extracts, which was the first licensed non-solvent extraction facility in the United States. From extraction to cultivation and dispensaries, Nicotee has owned and operated multiple fully licensed and compliant businesses under the legal systems in Colorado since one of them, since day one of medical legalization. Nicotee is a proud winner of 15 plus cannabis cups with his essential team and another hundred plus one by clients using the essential bag design in that that key key tech right the the techniques behind those that approach to extraction and 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 the hashishin as of 2018 nicotee has returned to his roots and brought his vision and brand back to his home town the bay area and launched essential extracts california when he isn't building extract empires nicotee spends his time traveling and djing throwing and hosting various m cannabis related events including weekly and monthly reggae parties producing radio programs huge festivals and sold out shows always with the spliff hanging out of his mouth. Nicotee has played with such artists as Revolution, Kaimani Marley, Mr. Vegas, The Far Side, KRS-One, Sound Tribe, Sector 9, Big Ups, that's the Santa Cruz Love, that's our family, E-40, Grizz, Modest Yahoo, Action Bronson, Capleton, Black Uhuru, Buster Rhymes, Gappy Ranks, and Wu-Tang Clan, just to name a few. He has hosted and thrown festivals and shows throughout the world, including but not limited to receiving the honor of hosting and DJing Reggae on the Rocks in 2013 and the High Times Cannabis Cup Award Ceremony, South Park Music Fest, Chalice, California, oh, Chalice, big ups, Chalice, the Emerald Cup and the Secret Cup, and the Masters of Rosin in Barcelona, Spain. Between his passion for cannabis and music, timed perfectly with the onset of legalization in the U.S., Nicotee continues to expand his brand, techniques, and music all over the globe, nationally and internationally. From now, you can find him blessing California with Essential Extracts California and cultivating the most iry music, musical experiences worldwide. Big ups, give thanks. Welcome to the Cannabis Connection, Nicotee. We are honored to have you on the show. Wow. Thank you so much for that intro. Yes, I, I man. I, I thought I'd stay busy, but that sounds like I'm busier than ever. <laughs> yeah, no, that's stacked. It's stacked. Uh, well, and that's the, that's the beautiful thing is the, the interweaving of the, of the music, of the creation, and then not only the cultivation of the herb, but all that comes beyond that, you know, the, the 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 appreciation of the resin, where we're all still thinking about Frenchy cannoli and, and and thinking about those those roots, you know, and they're all, you know, the most cosmic crop in the universe is the cannabis resin gland. Would love to hear your thoughts on on how did you get to know and appreciate really what we're growing is resin and not just the green biomass of the flower. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I grew up in Northern California, as you stated. Um, I was blessed with extremely supportive parents and family in general. And growing up in Northern California, cannabis was always really prevalent in my upbringing, in my life, in uh, my surroundings. And um, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving thanks. I'm, I'm extremely blessed to grow up in a place where cannabis was very accepted. 
And um, so I smoked and distributed cannabis from a young age. As a teenager, I was consuming. Eventually, I realized that consumption costs money, and I needed to figure that one out. And although my parents were extremely supportive, they weren't trying to support my habit. Um, so <laughs> I started researching more and studying the cannabis plant and started consuming a lot of it. And I realized that the flower at that time was not enough. I wanted something more. And I fell in love with the, the taste of hash, really specifically the taste of bubble hash. And growing up in Northern California, the Bay Area specifically, bubble hash was extremely prevalent. A lot of the hash that was smoked throughout the United States from the late 90s to the early 2000s was created in places like Mendocino County and Humboldt County, California, places I was uh, blessed with the opportunity to visit and to spend a lot of time in. I have family members up in Mendocino. And um, from a very early age, I was helping with the trimming and helping with the cultivation. It was a, it was a family lifestyle. And I remember needing something more than just the flowers. And I started trying bubble hash. First, it was on top of a bowl on top of a bong bowl or a dry pipe or a bubbler, we would uh, put that bubble hash on top of a little bit of an herb filter, a flower filter, if you will. And, the best uh, filter. Really, the flower filter is the best filter. I fell in love with that combination. You know, and that um, the, I want to say the, the manipulation as well of the hash and, and, playing with it and that malleable nature and, you know, flattening it out, making it into a disc or a ball or a little snake or a little, um, you know, rolled up situation and putting it on top of that flower. And it became artistic almost. It wasn't until college until, you know, 2000, uh, I'd say 2001 that, I really started honing in the skills of producing this product. And we started seeing butane hash oil come to market, hydrocarbon products that looked gold in appearance, had this honey oil, you know, type color and appearance and term that it was associated with it. And my brown, black, mildew-smelling bubble hash started to take a second seat. Wow. And I started wanting to figure out what that gold product was. Yeah. Uh, that's leading into a little bit something else, but hash has always been huge in my uh in my background and what I've been passionate about. Well speak to that because we've all been there with that, that you know, the darker maybe, you know, it wasn't maybe the ideal uh, manual sieve and, and and it's humbling at times to see Essential extracts, right? And, and uh, I mean, we're kind of fast forwarding, but there's, there's just certainly some key, key lessons learned about not only the carrying of the flower, but the carrying of the resin and the processing and, and, and these key things to think about, like just the, you know, the anatomy of the, of the cannabis flower for a lot of the novice listeners. This is something maybe you could break down in a really poetic way of just, uh, how do you elevate and, and also uh, provide agency to the people to have a deeper relationship with the plant and, and to, to get closer to what they're really looking for, which is bringing those resin heads together and, and, and concentrating that, that, that love, that essence, the pure essence of the plant. Yeah, let's break it down a little bit further for you know those who may not know or are just being introduced to these terms. When we're talking about the resin or the trichomes or really, in essence, what's shining back at us, when you see a flower yes. or cannabis or a cannabis bud, you see these crystals on it that are, you know, round in nature and they shine back at you due to their reflective nature. Yes. These crystals that we're speaking about are trichomes. And really specifically, the trichome has a structure to it. It has a bulbous head, and it has a stalk that connects to the plant material. Now, some trichomes don't have this, this bulbous head nature. There's a 
there's a few varieties out there that produce a trichome that ends in a conical tip, if you will, that doesn't have this bulbous trichome head. When we're talking about hash production, back to the very, very beginning days in old world and traditional style hash methodology, we're talking about collecting that bulbous head. So if your cultivar doesn't have or doesn't produce that bulbous head naturally, there's not much for us to collect. So let's bring it back to the very beginning and focus on that cultivar or that strain itself. Water hash or solventless or bubble hash, there's a lot of different terms for it, is very particular. You can't produce quality hashish or hash or bubble hash or solventless products out of every strain. It takes a very specific cultivar. When we look at variables, I oftentimes talk about the tactile experience when I'm actually touching that flower. During its growth phase between day 45 and day 55 is an ideal time to touch that flower. I like to go in and touch the close leaves, which would be the sugar leaves, which would be the leaves that contain these trichomes or these crystals that I'm speaking of, compared to like a water leaf or a fan leaf that might just be creating and, and attributing to the photosynthesis of that plant and drawing in the nutrients and drawing in that light, but it's not actually producing these glandular heads. And these glandular heads are really what we're looking for when we're talking about extraction or when we're talking about finding cultivars specific for this process. We want to find strains that have a density of these bulbous heads, so very trichome-dense strains are what we look for. We also look for a structure, as I mentioned, that has a very large bulbous head with a thin trichome stalk and even a thinner neck leading up to that head is um, ideal. A gentleman named Schwale has coined the term thin neck trait uh, for something that's known for washing. And it's uh, something really to take into account when looking for something that would be viable for extraction. This tactile feel, this structure, this trichome density is extremely important. Yeah, I think that's a very good best practice, too, is to get in there and especially with looking at growing from seed or growing new varietals, uh, especially if you had a happy accident or growing your seeds out for the first time, you really want to do this due diligence, this, this best practice of getting tactile and, and feeling the, feeling the, the beautiful resin production. I think it's a really lovely uh, approach for, for everybody that, especially in California, we have this ability for adults to cultivate their own little garden. 100%. Yeah, no, something really important to talk about. I do want to preface with if this is not your own garden, if this is your friend's garden or your caregiver's garden, you have the opportunity to enter said garden, just make sure you ask the cultivator, ask the person who's in charge of that yes. garden if you can't touch the plant. Because it is important, you know, some cultivators prefer not to touch the plant at all. They know their strengths at this point. They've been growing them for 10 years. They know that tactile experience. Um, and they want to keep that flower as pristine as possible. Now, a lot of cultivators will show the respect and, and appreciate someone of, of this nature asking if they can touch the flowers, and I think that most growers will allow that, but they'll give you a specific section or one bud to touch so that you're not manhandling the entire flower the entire plant. Um, just That's... a respect thing. Thanks. No, that's a really important reminder. And even even in the, I mean, this is a different era, but we were working in the Prop 215 era, and people would come in <laughs> to try to vend their wares, right? And and sometimes the managers on the floor would would would, would put their you know, put their paws in there and squeeze a a really you know show one of the top show colas, right? One of the one of the colas on the top of the pack, and sometimes. The growers would, would would get upset, and they were worried about how it would present to the procurement specialist or, or to the buyer. What it, it, it's very important to be very cognizant and, and aware of of this is an art. This is a this is a active uh, communion of of our of our relationship with the flora kingdom and uh, and being farmers and, and taking care of a garden. And, and so it's it's a very special relationship that. 
a lot of uh, gardeners and yardeners share is you know, some of these things have been little sprouts, right? They saw the little taproot come out of the bean when it germinated in the water or in the paper towel. And so to see a plant come to fruition and, and fruit and have flower is a, there's a lot invested and there's a lot of love. And you just want to be really aware and, and pay your respects and give reverence and give thanks to love right that's what this plant does is it really you put you put so much love in and it'll reflect that 10 tenfold back but you just don't want to go around squeezing all that love 100 percent, man that was said beautifully so you you and, and so coming from the bay area can you speak well you you were drawn to colorado because of college right in boulder speak to boulder a little bit because my family's from Colorado Springs, my parents met in Colorado. It's a very special place. I wouldn't be here without Colorado and the two meeting and, and skiing and, and Colorado Springs and, uh, all the, all the, all the wonderful red rocks and all the garden of the gods and these, oh, these, these amazing places. But I'd love to hear a little bit about your story because you're also a father. You're also, you know, you're also, there's 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 a story there too, right? My, my, I'm the prodigy of of a Colorado story, and I'm sure you have a story to tell. <laughs> yeah, well, let's back it up a little bit because I grew up in the Bay. I actually taught surf instruction at Ed Surf School in California, where you're at right now. Full so, circle. Well done. Let's back it up a little bit. I, you know, I fell in love with Santa Cruz and the scene and the culture. Um, I was actually torn in between going to UCSC and UC Boulder. Wow, uh, so was that was not in your bio. To, That's so cool. Yeah, going uh, to Santa Cruz or going to Boulder. And, you know, growing up in the Bay and growing up surfing, I wanted a little change. When I first yeah. stepped foot in Colorado, I flew into Denver. And the first thing that I did was we went to 6th Street, 16th Street Mall in Denver, Colorado, which is very uh, urban and, and, you know, it, it's the streets. It's uh, shopping and it's food and it's seeing a lot of poverty on the streets. And that was my first impression of Colorado. And pretty instantly, I didn't actually go to Denver University to DU. That was one of the schools that I had applied to that I had gotten accepted to. But upon entering Denver, Colorado, I felt a, a feeling that I didn't like. I didn't mm. want to be in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. It felt just dirty in reality, and it felt like not what I had imagined Colorado to be like. I had hippie friends growing up in Northern California that talked about Boulder, Colorado as this oasis, as this cultural epicenter and i did not feel that in denver <laughs> so instantly my, my, my mom was with me on this first trip out here to colorado instantly i told my mom i was like listen i don't want to go look at du i'm not feeling this energy i'm not feeling this vibe let's go straight to boulder it happened to be actually kind of a similar time of year as now where the seasons were changing there was a little bit of snow on the ground and as we left Denver, Colorado and entered Boulder, Colorado, looking at the snow-topped mountains and this view of the leaves changing, it felt like a pastel coloring book. Wow. And now I've been in Colorado on and off for 23 years, I think, 22 wow. years. You got some roots. And I've seen this. I've seen this the same atmosphere the same environment a few times now it's not every year that the seasons change that i see this but it's every few years that i see this pastel coloring book and it brings me back to that first day entering boulder colorado and falling in love so that's a little little story of uh how i made it out here but another part of that story is i was uh you know i was involved in cannabis and after i finished college in 2007 I went to live in uh, Oregon, and then I went back to living in San Francisco. Nice. Okay. And Colorado was the first place to really bring in real protective regulations. You mentioned 215. I was in California during 215 days. I was back and forth between 
going to college and call at, at CU Boulder and still going up to my uncle's farm in Mendocino and doing work. Yeah. And uh, that work under 215 days was was cool in some aspects. I could go work at my uncle's farm. I could go produce that hash in the Bay Area at my parents' house, and then I could go sell it to the vapor room in San Francisco on Hay Street. It was a nice. Thing for a that's TV. a nice closed right? loop right there. Yeah, and that's a lovely circuit. beautiful, but it wasn't protective. It wasn't sleep at night. There yeah. was always a scare Sketch. that the feds would come in. There sure. was always a scare that would get robbed, and I did. I got robbed. I had the feds come in. And in 2007, when I started up a warehouse in Oakland, California, or 2008, 2008, 2009, sorry, um, started up that warehouse in Oakland, California, I had federal attention. The second I turned on power via PG&E to my building, the feds came. And they said, hey, we know what you've been doing in Colorado. We know what you're doing in Cali. Why don't you go back? Go back to California. Go back to Colorado. We're not ready for you in California yet. So Whoa, I did. really? Wow. I went back to Colorado in 2009 and started up one of the very first dispensaries in Colorado. Wow. So, okay. Oh, that's interesting because, yeah, in many ways, I feel California was a little ahead of Colorado making waves with Prop 215, and especially Santa Cruz, with having a connection to Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz had legal protections in the city starting in 92, uh, years before Prop 215. And I work with Val Corral, and, and, and that legacy of Wham has been in this community oh, well that. before Prop 215. I mean, they, they were the authors yeah, with I remember, Dennis. I today's, Dennis's, yeah, today's Dennis's birthday. Happy birthday, Dennis Perron. Oh, fuck yeah. Happy birthday, Dennis. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, for real. And, you know, that brings up a great point, too. You know, growing up in California, it was extremely prevalent. It was accepted. 215 definitely came before any medical regulations in Colorado. Um, It still, I I still had the federal scare. I and see, I, I see. That makes sense. No, push, of course, of course. It's federal. I Colorado as being one of the first places that was going to bring on, um, I guess, a more strict regulatory system than 215 brought for California. And 215 was great. It was great for the patients. It was great for the producers. It was amazing for the cultivators. Yeah. It was, it was yes, legacy. It was. It, it's what we talk about as being legacy today, really. Um, yeah, strong roots, right? Strong clever, roots. Especially in it Santa Cruz, there's a lot of the the, the original hay home of the haze, uh, you know, some, oh, yeah, some, some cultivars, there, some deep, deep, deep building block work was done because of our proximity to the to the actual Monterey Bay, and then, and unfortunately, you know, it was maybe an illicit smuggling uh, endeavor, but but regardless, there were very special cultivars from Colombia and Mexico and Thailand and. Afghanistan and and they acclimated to this zone and I feel like a lot of the Emerald Triangle came to Santa Cruz to get the genetics they wanted to get the right beans or the right cuts. Um, every region across everywhere has their own little heritage quiver of special flavors, but we cannot deny that this little this little town on the coast is which what's which what it was once a very sleepy little spot before the university and then of course this is well before my time this is well before I was alive but when things evolved and we had UCSC and and then the 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 Capitola art festival and the begonia festival and all this like this is the the inception of I think Tim Blake went to SoCal High and was you know moving lids and in big old you know packs from 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 all the families all the Italian fishermen and all the different groups here in in this community it's just, it's really interesting roots in this zone uh, but agreed I mean when you think about a federal level of course Prop 215 was insufficient. And Colorado did make a massive change. Um, I feel like there was the Obama doctrine, and there was a massive like acknowledgement that there was a game changer in Colorado, definitely for sure. Yeah, and really, you know, I wanted to stay in California. California is where I had my connections, where I had those strains you're talking about. 
you know, that were brought in from Amsterdam, that were brought in yeah. from Jamaica. Moving them around. You know, yeah, it was, a, it was a beautiful, huge epicenter. But after I had that threat, that was when I realized that I needed to keep going. I needed to find somewhere that yeah. would accept me. Yeah. I wanted to sleep at night. I, I wanted to do this the rest of my life. There was never, actually, I don't think there's ever been a time in my life since I was 13 years old that I thought that I wanted to do something else. Um, Word. But my dad, you know, at the time, I believe he was working for a compliance company, and he was like, we want you to do what you love in life. We want to support you, but we don't see longevity in this game. We think well, you're going to get robbed get killed or go to jail. You know, this is the late 90s, and um, there wasn't longevity to the game in the late 90s. Um, what my dad was telling me was the truth, and I needed to find a better role in what I wanted to do or a more secure role. And, you know, it's interesting, in 215 days, I believe it was, you know, in still 215 days, as they started to uh, transition, if you will, I started getting a paycheck from Vapor Room, a taxed paycheck. And that's when nice. my dad was like, huh, maybe there is some longevity in what you want to do. And I just kept pushing forward. I was like, I need to fulfill this confidence in my family. I need to, you know, at this point in time, I had a, uh, a kid, as you mentioned, you know, and I'm a father now, a new father. Yes, congrats. I can't drive 100 packs from California to Colorado anymore. I no, no, no. We got we to gotta be smart. I need to find something that allows me that protection and something to sleep at night, you know? And uh, that's what Colorado uh, uh, provided. Yes. I I hesitate on that term provided right now because what we're dealing with is still federally illegal. I still look over my shoulder every single day, but I felt like Colorado was a little bit more protective than what 215 offered me. I'm not dissing 215 because I love the fact that it, really help the patients, and we've been losing that every single day since the, the loss of 215. We've literally gone further and further away from that compassion and, you know, the need. To, to provide free medicine is something that really drew me to cannabis, and I almost think that it was kind of like reggae music, right? I, I came to Santa Cruz... And I thought I'd be an actor. I thought I would I'd be a performing artist and, and go to Cabrillo and then maybe go to Santa Barbara and work my way down to L.A. and maybe go to New York and hit the stage. But in reality, things happen in life, right? And there, there, there are there's some that are called and there's some that are chosen. And, you know, many are called, but chosen are a few. And I feel like with reggae music, I was that, you know, I was called and, and chosen to play and, and I play bass, and, and that was like, that's a, a vocation of mine. And the thing with cannabis, it's crazy. It was situational. It was community. It was a part of the, the things I was interested in, which was local politics. All politics are local. Everything in life is kind of hyper here, but then the communal uh, archetype can be applied elsewhere. And if we can do a good job and, and set a good example and set a precedent, a legal precedent, then that can be applied to other models and other communities and can be spread. And then before we know it, the unraveling of the drug war, this has been done with the medical movement in California. And unfortunately, legalization was a cautionary tale. It is not something that I would try to model on a national level. California was a big mistake. It's a big mess. And I think, I agree. yeah, I think we're all on the same page. Even the regulators, even the, you know, everybody involved knows it's a mess. So that said, we could look at other places. We could look at the beautiful thing about federalist system is we have the beautiful thing of each state has their own little operation their own approach uh colorado one one great example oregon another example oklahoma all these other examples are coming online you're on a you're on a platform you're on a you're on a a level where you're able to really access and and kind of hack and 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 get deeper in to these other spaces obviously you have roots in colorado and in california but what are your thoughts on 
the other spaces, the other opportunities, because when we do see interstate commerce, that's going to be a major game changer, especially for farmers in California. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is a great transition. I feel like I've been speaking about this out loud like for the last three weeks and three years and 13 years and 30 years um, because for the last two years, three years, four years, actually myself, I've been focusing on emerging markets. I think that, you know, once a market gets saturated, it's really difficult to operate in a saturated market where it's over-regulated and big money's come in and they've pushed out the grassroots farmers and the craft cultivators and the people that have the passion. That's what's happening, you know, throughout the United States. Whether we like it or not, I have this view on the industry, and I'm blessed to have this view because I get to travel all around the world um, consulting for and, and helping brands launch. But at the same time, I do see this view of, of this, Uh, it's it's interesting. I don't know. I'm all over the place with my thoughts right now, but I was just explaining to someone earlier today that a big part that we're lacking is this knowledge in each individual state because each state is different. So when I first moved to Colorado and I started posting on social media, or first moved back to Colorado, I should say, started posting on social media, 215 didn't really allow for that public marketing of cannabis. Colorado allowed some protection in that aspect, so I was full force. I was on Facebook. I was on MySpace. Instagram didn't exist back then, but I was pushing the limits of what we could do. I was contacting local radio stations. One of the first radio stations that really focused on the cannabis industry was this radio station called the John Doe Radio. Nice. And I was blasting Tim Tim Martin was the guy's name. Um, I was blasting him, being like, I need on this show. We need to educate the people. And to kind of tie that back to what's happening now is there's still this huge lack of education as to what's happening in these individual markets. When I first went out to Colorado and I was posting on social media, my friends from California were like, hey, I – I want to come out to Colorado. It looks freed up out there compared to what we're dealing with. My friends from Oklahoma, same thing. My friends from New York were like, what are you doing out there? I'm moving to Colorado. And I didn't have time to answer everybody. I was working on contacting the Department of Revenue, the IRS, all these things that I was scared of as a drug sure. dealer. As a no, kid. no, was, yeah. You're I just trying to stay alive. You're staying compliance. Yeah, yeah. You, you're, a business, yeah. You're, you're a business operator, and it comes down to just – the nitty-gritty of staying staying ahead above water, but there needs to be a mechanism to do this outreach because the more we can connect the dots between these different different communities, right? What we're talking about is this this interweaving of a web, the mycelial web of cannabis community, and it's in, 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 intrinsically tied, right? This is the key thing. This is how we can to change how we operate with that cannabis consciousness there's there's an opportunity it's still early it's not too late people are getting really oh, jaded in california people new. are people are so they're hurting they're hopeless obviously it's an extinction event it's farmageddon we're all knowing and we're eyes wide open with what's going on but on a national level it's like you know week four of the pregnancy the baby hasn't even come to fruition yet yeah no i want to touch on a few of those things you hit some points there number one with california's market and it being over regulated over taxed we've got craft farmers that are getting taxed 250 to 300 dollars a pound they're charging or they're, they're paying a trimmer 250 dollars a pound and the market's not even allowing for light deprivation or outdoor crops to get more than $800 a pound. So our margins are gone. They're, they're, they're gone in California. I'm seeing depths at 5 and I'm seeing outs at 250 exactly. So let, let's go back, though, to, to this whole, you know, idea of emerging markets. And when I first went out to California and first started promoting this, I had these California friends being like, okay, I'm moving out. And they did. They moved out, and they set up a 
a 215-style either warehouse or home cultivation, just thinking they could go sell to a dispensary. And that was gone by 2011, 2012. Yeah. Um, that well, yeah. went out yeah. in Colorado. Yeah. There's still a little um, window, but it was, yeah, it... Santa Cruz is a is a is a, it was a like vortex. A six to eight yeah. month window in Colorado, but yes, there was windows in California. There was windows in other states. There still are windows in other states. Yeah. Oklahoma, for a perfect example, I just came back a couple of days ago from DJing and teaching a hash class in Oklahoma. Metric hasn't come into play in Oklahoma. Metric. I heard about this. Yeah. Sale. It's about to come into play. What May first or. Oh wow, that's soon. I thought they I thought they were libertarians and they don't accept metric. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Okay, okay. Bummer. People aren't prepared necessarily because most people are still, you know, skirting the law, if you will. And I'm not putting anybody on blast by any means. I think that it's very natural to want to skirt the law when dealing with over regulation and over taxation. Yeah, unjust laws. Isn't that the definition of an outlaw? Yeah, they operate outside of an unjust system. And we've always been outlaws, and I don't know if I'll ever not be an outlaw. And you look at places, you know, California, for a perfect example, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible to survive unless you're you know, what some people call backdooring. And now I've gone a different route. I don't, I'm not a licensed entity. I work under licensing agreements. So I've, you know, kind of pivoted uh, from an operational standpoint into more of a consulting and licensing deal role. So I'm able to, you know, watch what's happening and skirt some of the issues at play, if you will. That's a nice approach. Yeah, that's a great approach. Still issues. I've just... I think that I've I've pivoted well. Um, when an industry, you know, is struggling and the world is failing, I just try to be creative and and find a different play rather than dwelling in the negative. So agreed. Um, well, and, yeah. and and that's the thing is, it, and some people can, but some not not everybody can. And, and so, with that in mind, you know, the, there needs to be reform. The policy needs to be reformed especially here in california oh, 100%. and if we look at other systems especially if we're looking at a potential of a of a interstate commerce which could be a, a a major saving grace for the craft farmers of california the mom and pop operators huge it could be huge as long as they do it correctly because they could get fully taken advantage of yet again you know well with, uh, and that's so true and, and we have this system this is the thing I've been thinking, I've been marinating. So Valerie Corral has a signature on her email and she quotes Picasso. And I'm starting to really think about the wisdom behind Picasso's quote because the reality is learn the rules so you know how to break them. That's kind of where we're at. It's like we all need to humble ourselves to the rules. So that we can learn, and I'm not talking about backdoor. I'm talking about kind of what you're doing is a creative solution to a tricky problem. Obviously, we need to maybe remedy the policy in California, but before we look at a national interstate market, we need to learn the lessons of the cautionary tales of, of groups like California and hopefully not make those mistakes on the national level. There are other groups, There, are, when I say groups, I mean states, there are other systems that are operating well that maybe we should look at. Of mine are in Michigan and anywhere else in the United States, and not all of them are um, canopy licensed, if you will. They might be caregiver licensed, and that system for the patient to lasted longer in Michigan than a lot of other places, and it's being threatened as we speak. Um, but I think that Michigan has given the uh, that caregiver role or that model a really nice name. Yeah, Michigan. Okay, so let's get to let's get down to this because Michigan comes up so far from Santa Cruz. I have no. I mean, you could say you could, you might as well say. It's just, it's just, it's not, this is a very special opportunity to learn because you go on the road, you're a master educator, master hashishin, uh, 
you, you, you got chops and you got roots and you got a lot of clout. So from your perspective, what about their approach could maybe be like what pieces of policy or what key like takeaways can we maybe even think about obviously on a national level? Because I, okay, let me just tell you something. Before the show tonight, I was with a homie. Uh, on Portola Drive, not far from Pleasure Point, it was at his house, uh-huh. and he was just like, "Hey, Smiley, what's up? What's up with the national legalization?" I was like, "I don't know, man. I think they have bigger fish to fry. I know the House made some moves, but the big thing is the Senate. It's all kind of like you know saving face for the constituents. Personally, that's my read because I I'm into politics, but." Yeah. What are your thoughts on Michigan and what can we learn and how do we apply that? You know, and if there's some good language or some good, like, takeaways, like, I'm talking about layman's terms, like 10,000 feet up, nothing too technical. What can we learn from Michigan? Because it sounds like you're stoked on them and you're the kind of person that goes places and can learn from what works. Yeah, and I, to be completely honest, as a preface, I need to look into the actual law a little bit further. Um, and I highly suggest everyone look into the individual state laws, um, you know, before even traveling to those specific states. But from an outside perspective, from somebody that goes to multiple states on consultation, I have very few and far between states that I go to uh, that have licensing that have rolled into the medical or the recreational program where I'm consulting for home growers, if you will, because they've been pushed out by the state's regulations. In Michigan, they haven't been pushed out yet. And it's unfortunate I have to say yet because it's a constant battle and a constant struggle as far as what I'm hearing from caregivers in the state of Michigan. But as of today, I mean, I have three new caregiver clients in the state of Michigan in the month of May. So what I know from a personal level is that that model is still pushing along quite strong compared to uh, California's model or Colorado's model where the where Colorado really, you know, there is still medical marijuana that exists in Colorado. It's not under a caregiver law for the most part. It's under, you know, a medicinally licensed, over-regulated model, so far over-regulated that most people, if you were grandfathered in as a medical license holder in the state of Colorado, you rolled up into a recreational nation in reality. This is where it gets confusing as well, that differentiation between the term medical and recreational. For someone like me, it's all wellness. And Colorado, I think, really fucked up this situation. I'm sorry I'm on the live radio. I just said the F word. But I think that Colorado messed this up in allowing for a recreational system that would push out medical due to regulation. So because operators could now operate with the same cost for the most part and almost the same regulations minus some edible milligram regulations and, um, you know, a a few other, you know, regulatory uh, language, et cetera, with the medical versus recreational, it's really the same. So most operators went recreational, if you will. But when you talk about recreational, I think that a lot of these operators were still servicing people from out of state that had real medical needs. We saw when I was an owner at a dispensary in Colorado, and when we went from medical to recreational, I saw more out-of-state patients coming in for real needs. And that's why I use that term wellness, because... Whether you're talking about medical or recreational, it's all cannabis, all grown the same. It's not like we're growing differently in our medical grow than our recreational grow. They have different colored tags on them, one's green, or sorry, one's blue and one's yellow. Um, But think of the plant. I mean, think of nature. Yeah, no, I I think I just want to riff off of what you're saying and just build on your foundation the the reality is, and especially in honor and in reverence of Dennis Perone's birthday, which is today, all use is medicinal use. 
bringing cannabis into your life, building a relationship with the sacred plant is in is is in communion with something that is uh, uh, elevating the consciousness and, and and bringing a healing that whether you like it or not is happening. And in in my experience, growing cannabis was the biggest high, the most high, because you give that plant some love and it comes back, boom, tenfold. And I imagine as a as a hashishin too, there are certain cultivars that just like, boom, you know, you're like, whoa, like, wow. There's such a involuntary response to the love that can be, there's there's this reciprocal, it's almost like a performer. I know you do crowds. I know you do shows. I know you are part of that reggae community. So my experience as a performer, playing bass, bass to move the waist, smiley on the bass, always, if you just, you know, you put your heart into something, comes from the heart, goes to the heart, and then boom, tenfold. And so just remembering, you know, obviously we have these Babylon systems we have to follow just to stay compliant, but the reality is, a relationship with cannabis is healing, healing of the nation. The prophetic words of the of the Rasta, you know, music was always aligned with what is happening. And so, again, getting back to the roots of the Picasso quote, learn the rules so we don't have to break them, is not about breaking the law. It's all about getting into the system and doing a good job. And when you do a good job, you can manipulate the system in such a way where you can change it and make it better and make it more equitable and fruitful just the way nature operates. If you watch cannabis grow, it kind of has an ability to take, you know, you give it one heart and it'll take that one heart, that one love, and it'll turn it into ten and then fractal out into a hundred and fractal out to a thousand because that resin that comes from one flower or the whole canopy of flower can feed so many sick people. And when you have a relationship with the herb, it doesn't stop. It continues to fractal out from there. And so when we think about a national cannabis market, we need to keep in mind that it all is stemming from the medical movement. This place there's no differentiation from medical because the AIDS epidemic in California was really the beginning. Val Corral is this amazing little spitfire, you know, five foot one Italian woman with a AK-47 from a DEA agent on her back in 92. And she sued them and won in federal court. That's Santa Cruz history. That's part of our narrative as a community. And we'll take that and, and continue to build upon that foundation. I agree with you, man. It, it doesn't, doesn't need to be differentiated, but if we're going to work within a system, might as well work within it and try to make the most of it. Let me emphasize one thing, and I, I know we're all over the place and jumping from topic to topic, but... This is the reason I got into it. I got into this due to my passion. I saw what it could do for me, and I saw what it could do for my family and the people around me, and I realized that this plant could help. And so I started selling it. I started, you know, having those scares of my father and, and this longevity of what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I wanted to help people. So what did I do? I rolled up into medical. When recreational came on, I saw it as an opportunity to help even more people because that was my goal. That was my initial goal. How can I help more people? That's why I rolled up into the regulatory system. That's why I contacted the DOR. That's why I contacted the IRS because I wanted to help more people. And helping people underground wasn't enough. I couldn't reach the amount of people I wanted to reach. So we rolled into medical. After medical, I couldn't reach the amount of people I wanted to reach, so we rolled into recreational because I could see more Word. people, more real patients. As I mentioned, I had patients coming in from Texas out of, out of state because they could legally purchase marijuana in the state of Colorado. 
you know, whatever the reason was for that, it was, it was wellness to me and I needed to provide it. Now, when the state, the states are over-regulating and over-taxing us, and I am now limited on my reach once again. And the reason I got into this was to help people and was to, you know, prove that this plant was viable. Now, what I've done in the last four years is I've pivoted into a consulting role because I can help even more people. So as we talk about these emerging markets, as we brought up that discussion, that's why I've reverted or converted into a consulting role and specifically working on the emerging markets because now I can help teach people which extend that knowledge and extend this plan even further. That's no agreed. And I was that came up too with the homie and Partola speaking about the federal piece is just like where's the education? Where's the consultant? So big ups on that because it's so important what you're doing. It's so important to bring that kind of knowledge, that reverence and that expertise to places like, honestly, I I can't speak because I've never really been to Michigan or Oklahoma, but I know there are amazing things happening and we need more of our, of our roots community touching the hearts of the greater massive of America. Why not? It's what it's all about. 100% man. And you know, the correlation between the music and the culture has been key for me. I'm able to go into these emerging markets and not only consult on a cannabis level, but I'm, you know, tying that into getting booked as a DJ and as a host for these events or as a judge. Um, and it's, uh, it's really cool because, you know, growing up in the Bay Area, as a DJ, you know, cannabis was always there. And I was always trying to find ways to tie the two together. You know, people mentioned that, you know, cannabis helps them be more creative and, and more musically inclined and this and that. Um, I wanted to really bring those cultures together. You know, I spent a lot of time in Jamaica and, and DJing reggae music as well. And it's, you know, as you know, it's a big part of the culture. And uh, it's a spiritual aspect, too. You know, yeah, I wanted 100%. to you know, bring that to the table. And a lot of the dub plates I get produced for my music career, I, I, they're shouting out solemnlicious. They're shouting out the strains that I, you know, I enjoy myself. So there's a, there's a huge correlation between the two and marketing the two, you know, um, and, and tying the two together. Anytime I get a console job, I'm tying it in to get a DJ job. And vice versa. Anytime I'm booking DJ gigs, like, oh, where am I traveling? I wonder if they need some cannabis consulting. Um, and it's uh, it's gone hand in hand, and it's allowed me to survive and uh, be compassionate in some of my pricing um, on the console side, and so I can make up for it on the DJ side, and vice versa. Big ups, man. We're we're in the last five seconds, so I just want to say. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We have to uh, do this again, and uh, we love you. Thank you again. Thank you, bro. I appreciate the time. Thanks for putting me on.